Welcome into another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. Crazy snowstorm that happened this, this past week here in, well, really across the Midwest, but me being in Cincinnati, it was pretty bad here. A lot of ice and sleet. I spent, I believe, four and a half hours shoveling the driveway where my cage is at. So that was fun on Friday, and but was able to, to get players in all day Saturday and Sunday. So, yeah, that was a, <clears throat> arms are a little bit tired, a little bit sore today, but happy to get that good workout in. That was, uh, that was quite the experience. Um, you know, I think in today's episode, it's going to be a fun one. We haven't talked a ton about the strength conditioning in a good amount of time, so I think today will be fun kind of just going back over some of the important things when it comes to lifting in the weight room and how important and how impactful that can be to developing players on the mound and at the plate and even in the field. And so I reached out to Josh Calton, who is someone who is really, really good when it comes to understanding how the body moves and then also understanding how to program movements so that athletes can understand it and and you know do it consistently. So I appreciate Josh for coming on the show. He's someone who, I mean, he has every certification in the world. He actually has spent time coaching college baseball himself. He's played professionally, was drafted by the Detroit Tigers out of Illinois State University. He has his own company, too. It's called Coach K's Academy in Normal, Illinois. They do a great job expanding like crazy, growing like crazy. So, again, appreciate Josh coming on the show. If you're someone who's interested in the strength conditioning, what to do if you have a, a player or you know maybe one of your kids and they, you know they need to get stronger, this is going to be a great episode for you to listen to and uh, take some, some pieces of this information and, and be able to apply it right away. This episode is brought to you by Driveline Plus. Driveline Plus is a growing library of the best information on player development. One of the reasons that I personally like Driveline is because they're constantly pushing the envelope in player development. And so Driveline is a data-driven player development company. And they're someone who really has been at the forefront of a lot of these changes that you see in professional baseball. And so they have this um, part of their company is uh, this called Driveline Plus. And essentially what it is is they put in so many different pieces of content, video content, various drills, various you know types of things that you can take right away and t- and put right into your practice practice design you can teach to your players things that will help connect the dots for you when it comes to player development and so if you go to drivelinebaseball.com slash plus and type in coupon code jones25 you'll get 25 dollars off your first year of driveline plus so if you're someone who has a growth mindset as a coach is curious and wants to learn more to be able to help out their players, I can't recommend this enough. Driveline Plus, drivelinebaseball.com slash plus, and then type in coupon code JONES25 for $25 off. So I think it's something that I personally do, and I think it's something that if any coach out there, if you're curious, growth, have a growth mindset, and want to help out your players, you definitely need to check out driveonbaseball.com slash plus. Ladies and gentlemen, here is now my episode with Josh Kelton.
All right, we now welcome on Josh Calvin. Josh, appreciate you on the show today. Really appreciate you having me, man. So are you running your facility full-time now? I am not, actually. So I'm kind of in that transitional phase where um, still doing a day job, uh, transitioned from coaching full-time at Heartland Community College and was doing kind of the JUCO thing, right? Doing lessons on the side, trying to scrape by and survive and got married, had a few kids and life takes you where it takes you and got, got more involved in the private side and still kept my day job throughout that whole thing, trying to make it work. And um, now actually, so the last couple of years I've been in a job um, with orthopedic surgery sales, which is kind of cool uh, with my degree in, in kinesiology. It, it, it really allowed me to kind of understand the human body even to a further degree. And then locally, it's been kind of cool to to really have that full circle of care for my athletes where, you know, if there's, there's always a disconnect, right? You know, guy gets hurt, guy calls off ortho. They can maybe see him next week or two. He says, you know, PT, they see the physical therapist, physical therapy clears him. And then he goes back to high school coach and high school coach is like, all right, now what? He's like, I don't know. I'm cleared. So you know, when he's really nowhere near, like if it was like an ACL, he's cleared. All right, put him in practice. Let's go. But from a overhead thrower, clearing PT means you're not even close to being back on the field. So it's been nice to have that circle of network where I can kind of communicate with the doctors and, you know, from a nerd perspective, uh, it was pretty cool to be in the surgeries and, and see knee replacements, hip replacements, and get a better understanding of human anatomy and, and functional anatomy and how it all ties together. So it, when I was in the OR, I would kind of always have the baseball brain on of thinking like, man, how does this, this guy's hip anatomy effect if he was going to be a baseball player. So, um, so I'm still in wound care. I'm still in a, or a medical sales, just in a different field during the day and then doing the academy stuff at night. You said, I mean, eventually, do you want to do the base or your, the facility full time or do you like kind of having a little bit of both? Uh, I think always the goal is to try to get to purely baseball. Right. Um, but like I said, you know, family comes, comes into play and sometimes your priorities are, are shooken up a little bit. And I love, I mean, obviously I love being in there, but um, I'm to the point where my kids are eight, five and two. So they're starting to get into PM activities. And so I'm going to be less and less available in the evenings and, and weekends. So always trying to, to ride that, like, you know, that fine line of, I want to be in, but at the same time, I want to work with my kids as well. And, yeah. and don't, want to, don't want to be the absent dad either. So it's always that fine line of, of, of baseball coach versus dad. Yeah, that's, I'm sure that's, a, I don't have kids, but I'm sure that's a tough, tough balance. Do you have coaches who work underneath you at your facility? Yeah, we have lots of coaches, um, tons of like, um, I wouldn't say we don't have any quote unquote full-time coaches right now. We've got a lot of like, so Heartland Community College is here in town. So a lot of their assistant coaches and head coaches will, uh, head coach will, will help do some lessons on the side and run some of our programs. Um, we work with some other strength conditioning guys uh, that kind of lead our uh, strength conditioning program. And then we have a lot of blended guys that will do um, they're not maybe full-time yet, but getting there where they're doing maybe lessons one day, strength and training the other day, and then doing some admin work during the day. Um, so we're, like I said, we're kind of a newer business, so to speak, our, our business model, we're growing really fast and we're trying to keep up with the demands of, of staffing. But. 
How long have you been doing the the training, strength conditioning at your facility and everything? Like when did you start your your business? Yeah, so I I, I got I got drafted in 04 out of Illinois State, uh, played with the Tigers for three years and indie ball for two. And so I, I finished up my last year of playing in 08. And that was when Heartland Community College had just started their program the year prior. And Nate Metzger, who's now at Wright State as their associate head coach, was the head AD and head coach and uh, knew me being around and, and asked if I was interested in coaching and you know, of course, when you're playing, you don't want to think about plan B, right? It's yeah. and plan A is the only plan. Um, but writing was probably on the wall that things weren't weren't going where they were, where I wanted them to go. And so I ended up saying yes. And, and I was kind of coaching remotely that first, um, you know, I was finishing my playing career and they were there on campus in August. So that first month I was sending a lot of programs back and forth and coaching remotely. Um, so you know, kind of from there, I've always, my degree is in exercise science and kinesiology. So it was kind of a, a blessing in disguise, I suppose, where I was the head strength coach and the head and the pitching coach for all six years. And so I was doing both and it was kind of a blessing in, in disguise because a lot of times you get silos, right. Where maybe strength guy doesn't, and it's gotten a lot better in recent years, but like strength guy maybe doesn't understand the pitching movement or the hitting movement. Um, maybe pitching guy doesn't understand strength conditioning principles and maybe they hate each other or maybe there's just not communication where, you know, you've got, this is what we're doing. We're doing upper body lift today and we're doing upper body focus lift today. And, you know, didn't communicate that, oh, he has a bullpen later today. Right. So, um, just being able to control both ends of it, I think really made a, a pretty good system because, I was pretty good communication with myself a lot. Uh, <laughs> and, but it, it was, again, it was a blessing and a curse. And, and as I started to look at like other opportunities down the road, I think people kind of wanted me to pick one, right? Like, are you a pitching coach? Are you a strength coach? And, and again, we're talking 08, 09, all the way up to like um, 12 and 14. It's, I was like, well, my answer was always both. And I felt like being a good strength coach made me a better pitching coach. And I felt like being a good pitching coach made me a better strength coach, uh, understanding the, the, you know, a lot of the similarities between the two and how they played off each other. Cause I felt like I could make a lot of mechanical improvements in the weight room, um, just by driving that versus just, Hey, let's work on drills, uh, being able to really drive, um, you know, movement changes through the weight room was, was huge. What, what's something that you see as a strength coach when you, you are on social media? I know, I know obviously you're on social media. I know that's where we first connected, but, but what do you see that could be improved from the strength conditioning realm for developing baseball players across the board? I mean, across all over the country. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, I think it's, I don't think anybody has a good answer right now in terms of one of the things that I always see out there is the, de the debated uh, college versus run poles for mental strengthening mental. Like we know that running poles forever and, and all that isn't going to elicit a better um, athlete per se in terms of, of their physical attributes. But I do think there's something to be said for pushing through something that is just mentally unbearable and tough because that's what baseball is, right? It's, it's sometimes mentally unbearable and tough. And so trying to, you, you really find out who is in it and, and who's willing to push through something that is brutal. Um, 
And that's, you know, you're going to be in 0 for 10 slumps. You're going to be throwing electric pitches and they dump it into right field for a single, you know, I mean, it's trying to be able to to mentally grind through. And so I, I don't know what the right answer there is in terms of, you know, is, is running six miles the first day when you get back to campus, the right answer, probably not is, is not forcing your athletes to do anything other than like flying tens always the right answer. Probably not. So I don't know where the Omaha challenge or, you know, wherever your destination challenge falls. I think that's probably the, that's one that I see that's always uh, a hot spot on social media that I think, I don't know that I've seen a good answer yet for, I think we've done a really good job of understanding that, you know, maybe max back squat isn't the best eliciting, uh, KPI for a pitcher, for a baseball player. And there's a point of diminishing returns of absolute strength. I think that was always kind of a, one of my sticking points of like, all right, how much, like how much stronger does a guy need to be to be a good pitcher? You know what I mean? But I think the, the industry is really caught up on that where it's still fun to see guys throw up, you know, four stacks on a squad and, and move some weight. And, but I think at a certain point, how much of that training economy of time has made them better on the mound, if you're already strong enough. So what, 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 what is strong enough? Yeah, I think it's, it's relative strength. I think everybody's got their own versions, but like, you, you know, we kind of say, all right, can you trap bar twice your body weight? Um, can you front squat one and a quarter your body weight? Um, and so I think there's other KPIs, um, I think, and there's always variations, right? Like, so you get a guy, like some of my pro guys, right? Like I've got a guy that's like 6'6", 260. Like, does he need to do 520 to be strong enough? Probably not. So it's kind of like, all right, twice your body weight, or um, I think even Cressy's kind of bought out there and said like 450 is kind of his benchmark of strong enough on the trap. Um, so it just we kind of go off relative body weight unless you just get like a large human and you're pushing 260, 270 as a, as a big dude. We don't necessarily hard fat, hard, steadfast, you know, the two X body weight thing, but. Isn't um, your, the, the length of your limbs have something to do with that. The only reason I bring that up is because for example, like I could trap our deadlift over 500 pounds, not to, you know, show off or anything, but I have oh, extremely. Right, I have, I have extremely long arms, so I don't have, I don't have to go down as far as someone else. And kind of in a sense, I would just, I wouldn't cheat obviously, but I didn't have to go up and down as far because of how long my arms are. Like, does, is that taken into account at all? When you talk about just strength training, I know Cressy said 450 or whatnot, but my 450 may be easier to get than you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I mean, if you're, if you're long levered and, and all that, like, some things are going to be naturally. So you're dead. I'm similar in terms. I'm a long femur guy with long arms. So, you know, deadlift came natural to me. Um, I was anterior pelvic tilt, so I still am, but, uh, deadlift again, kind of came natural to me and I had big bang for my buck, but back squat was brutal, right? Long femur guy with anterior tilt. And I was a low bar, low bar squatter. Um, and it was just, I sucked at it. It's brutal. You know, I, of course, I grew up in the nineties, early two thousands, not to date myself, but it was, you know, a lot of football mentality of get low and grind out. And I think it worked to a certain extent because obviously I made some jumps, but I think towards the end of my career, um, you know, I think it was a, a, a diminishing return for sure in terms of mobility and, and strength. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, of course, like your, your anatomical setup is going to predispose you to 
being advantageous in some things and disadvantageous in others. But I think generally speaking, when we talk about baseball players and, and specifically, you know, pitchers, um, you start to see some commonalities and, and you can, you can kind of say general rules, like it might not cover a hundred percent of the people, yeah. but you know, not the 90%. So what would be a, a good way you said, you know, you brought up the one, one rep max, okay. Probably not the best way to go about it, but I mean, if someone can do heavier weight or is this where the speed comes into play when you're talking about just uh, trying to accelerate faster during the lifts and being able to measure how fast you're moving the bar? Yeah. And so that's where, you know, one of our, one of our mantras is, is, is assess, don't guess. Right. So if we can assess guys where they're at on the velocity force, force velocity curve and understand where they're at on the speed strength continuum, um, you know, if, if they're really strong, but they really lack in some of the power output stuff, you know, maybe they're, again, maybe they're pulling 500 and they've got like a 23 inch vertical and like their rotational med ball toss is not very good. So understanding um, where they're at and what type of athlete they are. And, and again, I'm good coaches are always thieves, right? So I'm going to, steal some more stuff, but, um, Bill Parisi is a guy that he really put it into, he, he, he had a, a comment that just really like stuck with me in terms of being able to classify your athletes. And he was talking more about the fascial network and, and what type of athlete you have that in terms of how they produce their power. But the, the analogy he uses is elephants, rhinos, and cheetahs. And so we can all picture, you know, let's say we've got three pitchers, an elephant, a rhino, and a cheetah, and they're all throwing 92. So they all throw the same. They're all producing the same amount of force at the end of the day, um, power output, I should say. But, you know, the 6'6", 260-pound guy that's throwing 92 is probably producing force a little bit differently, right? He's probably a strength-strength kind of guy producing more um pure power, uh, pure strength, maybe versus like that elastic, uh, whippy motion. Um, then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got your six foot, 275 pound, um, lightning rod arm, right. And he's 92. And those are the guys that we all typically, uh, gravitate towards. Cause you see that frame and you think, okay, if I can, if I can put some weight on that, holy cow, what do we got? Right. That's more of an upside arm. And then you've got your rhinos who are kind of the in-between, um, you know, a, a blend of the brute strength and the elasticity, right? So I always like that analogy visually. Uh, it kind of gives me an idea of where athletes are. So how do I use that in real world is, you know, if I've got a, a quote unquote rhino, strong, strong dude, um, large human, you know, I don't know that I need to give him more strong man stuff. Like he probably needs to hang out with the cheetah a little bit and start to think more, um, you know, more speed, speed focus on the end of the spectrum, more velocity. And if I've got the, the cheetah, uh, he probably needs to hang out with the elephant more and do more, um, strength, strength stuff, a little bit more force development type stuff. So just trying to give an athlete because what we're really talking about is efficiency, right? Um, how fast can I get this athlete as good as he can possibly be? And speed matters. So, you know, getting an athlete good two years before he becomes into his own is means hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars, right? So if I take a guy that's in college and he's a junior 
and you know you add on all this mass and velocity like that's really good but what if you would have added it on when he was a senior in high school and made him a dude you know the the same 95 mile an hour arm at 18 versus 22 is 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 a completely different conversation in terms of that guy's career so how can we give the athlete that's you know what they need the most and most appropriate and how can we accelerate and, and create really a learning curve efficiency so just saying mass equals gas isn't true um i think not it's not a hard fast rule for sure i think it's it's need need based right so 62165 probably needs some mass and probably get some gas you know 62250 again point of diminishing returns, you know, putting 20 pounds on that guy, probably not great. Um, have you noticed like with the bigger guys, the elephants, maybe they don't get injured as often because they have that natural strength. Um, I would say no. I mean, I, I think because a lot of those guys, what we found, especially if they're big at an early age, um, the guys who are maybe the guys who we see like just rocket ship and make massive jumps are the guys who are maybe late bloomers, undersized, had to learn how to move well early um, to compete. Uh, so think like the, just think in the big leagues, like the smaller dudes, like the, the Strowmans, the Sonny Grays, the, you know, your Donnie Venturas, the guys who were maybe like undersized, but they had to figure out how to move efficiently and well to generate at the smaller size, and then maybe hit like their growth peak later. I mean, those guys are the ones that make like just massive jumps and explode, but the guys who are maybe, uh, you know, 13 years old and 6'2 and had to carry around their birth certificate to prove that they were in the right age category. Um, I've seen a lot of those guys actually develop really poor patterns because the, you know, the field is short and what, what pitching really is, is momentum generation. And when you're huge and you're short or when you're huge and you're throwing from a shorter distance, you can get away with really bad patterns because you can just be huge and fall and, you know, that's how you create power. So a lot of times those bigger guys, when they're big early, um, they have a lot of trouble later trying to figure out those patterns to, to use like their lower half efficiently. Cause they've just always relied on being huge. So, yeah. <laughs> so I wouldn't say like, it's an absolute big guys stay healthy. Um, but, um, I would say it's in my experience, I wouldn't say that that would be the case. I'd love to hear Josh. I'd love to hear your thoughts on pitch count because I, I truly don't understand pitch count how it, I mean, I get it why it's put into to play in a sense, I'm sure, especially at the amateur level where coaches are just trying to win games and, you know, you got guys throwing three days in a row, but in terms of just, you know, if you're throwing once a week or whatever it is, I mean, I, I feel like there's so many things that you can't quantify when it comes to a, a pitcher and if they should continue to throw unless you have you know, they're wearing something or some sort of piece of technology, because other than that, it's really just you gauging how stressful that they are, like the environment that they're in, how they're struggling, how they're throwing on the mound, if it's they're just blowing by batters or not. So I don't, I just want to, I want to hear your thoughts on, on the pitch count dilemma. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's better than nothing. Uh, right, was, was I, was I on, like, um, did you agree with what I just said? Yeah, I think for the most part, I, I've never, like I said, like, oh, 100 pitches, he should shut it down and be done. Um, and I've always kind of innately felt like that. I mean, I've thrown games where I'm embarrassed to say that I was like 130 pitches in and I felt great and my velo was holding and I was I was great. Like, let's go. 
And I've thrown days where I've been like 95 pitches and I'm like, I don't think I can throw another pitch. Um, like my arm's going to fall off. Um, and for whatever reason that may be, but I think having something as simple as a pinch count pitch count is, is at least a guardrail for some of the, the youth levels. Um, and maybe even the high school levels, but I think people have also, it's kind of the uh, self-fulfilling prophecy a little bit where we've, we've gotten into this babying of pitchers so much that, yeah, like, oh, we can't, there's no way we could throw, uh, you know, more than 60 pitches, like because of X, Y, Z, and there's no way we could throw long toss this much and we've got to protect it. And I get all of that, but I think it's a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because people train so scared to, you know, really press the envelope from a training perspective that they are prepared to throw that 100, 110. Um, but back in, back in my day, <laughs> uh, really dating myself, but back in my day, you know, it was, you just went out and you played catch all the time and you just, it was free play, right? It was not, it was a lot of not restricted practice. Um, I will say, kind of going back counter contradicting myself a little bit is it's there's so much pressure on these younger guys to be so good so fast and so i think you know one contributing factor to these a lot of these these injuries is is the rate of which how how much force and how hard these guys are throwing how early um and it's it's the recruiting game right like you, you get guys that are eighth graders and seventh graders, like verbally committing to these schools. And there's all this pressure to be good on social media and get ranked by somebody. And you, you got these like freshmen in high school pumping out like 90, 92. And I, there's just no way they're, they're skeletally mature enough to sustain that over a long course of time. Um, but you're right. Like I was, on, I'm on the same pages you is like towards the end of my career as at Heartland. Um, one of the things that we started to do was, was a, a modified pitch count where I never believed a pitch was a pitch um, in terms of like stress. And this is pre modus pre pulse where we didn't have a way to measure. Um, but inherently we knew that like the slider was more stressful. We knew that like splitters were more stressful. Um, and being a pitcher, I, you know, having a runner on first, that was a plus runner, like that altered your mechanics. That always made me feel more stressed in terms of like, maybe not being able to repeat my delivery, which in turn made it a more stressful throw, um, pressure situations like late in the game, time, game tying run. And so kind of what we did is, is I, I gave like a, a coefficient, so to speak, uh, rather than just a pitch being one, um, if I thought it, if I deemed it to be a, a stressful pitch and I kind of gave it categories, right? Like if you had to go slide step and you weren't a slide step guy, if you had, were late, you know, high stress pitches, sliders and splits. And I just threw a random, like, I know it's more stressful. I don't know what the coefficient is. I did 1.5. And at the end of the inning, if, if it was like a 20 pitch inning, oh, also we did, if you did more than 30 pitches in an inning, every pitch after that was a one five. Um, so basically if you threw like 20 pitches in an inning, but 10 of them were sliders, like your pitch count to me, wasn't 20, it was 30. And so we kind of went off of that more than more so than like just the straight pitch count because a hundred is not a hundred, right? Like you get a guy that's in the seventh inning and he's cruising and he's had two base runners in six innings versus a guy that's in the fourth and he's had traffic all day, every day. Um, for me, did, like, did you, you came up with that on your own. Yeah. I just made it up. Um, I never really, 
I just kind of used it as a metric and more so what I did is used it as more um, as a gauge of my recovery. Um, so if I had a guy that, you know, he threw a hundred, but his like coefficient number was like 110, 115, I'd be like, cool, he's good to go for his full throttle bullpen. But hey, he threw 100, 105, but like his coefficient was like 140 because of the high stress pitches. We just backed him off on his on his um, side day and just did more of like a touch and feel just to just to try to monitor his stress. Like we didn't again, we didn't have technology back then to, to truly measure it where pulse has been great in terms of that being able to measure workload and um, acute to chronic workload ratios and, and understanding the your, your what you should be trying to target that week for the month uh, or versus the month. So. Going back to what you were talking about, about, you know, a freshman throw in 90. It's funny you said that because I was at my, my old high school yesterday at Moeller and they have a freshman who's already throwing 90. If you had a kid, if you're like one of your kids who is was a freshman in high school, because you said like you're you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but believe you said like his skeletal system like, isn't really ready for that at as a freshman in high school be able to throw 90 miles an hour so if your son was throwing 90 as a freshman what would you do to make sure that he you know is going to be healthy in five years that's a really good question i think um you know hopefully my son if he's throwing 90 as a freshman i i think i would really want to manage his workload um, I would be careful to get caught up in the hype of having to go to every showcase, having to go to every event, um, you know, having to throw every important game, quote unquote, because how many important games is a freshman in high school, like really throw, I don't know. <laughs> um, and then it would just be the weight room, man. Um, if he's already got the ability to throw 90, it's just really more the ability to sustain that. And so what, what can we do to, to solidify that structure, that bone structure, again, get at 14, 15, um, you're, you really don't have fully closed growth plates. Your bone isn't skeletally mature enough there to, to be solid. Um, we see a lot, I've seen a lot of, of increase in like medial epicondyle fractures in that age population, like that, that 12 to 15 range, you know, they don't really see a lot of UCLs or anything like that, but again, that your, your bones aren't fully formed at that age and you're creating these, these stressful situations. And, and it's good that your, your soft tissue is strong enough, but you're, I've seen a lot of, of not going to say a lot, I've seen an increase in medial epicondyle fractures at that age population for sure. So if my kid was 15 and pumping 90, I would just really try to manage his workload, um, get in the weight room. Again, my, my wife is six, three and and wow, uh, she, likes, she likes to say she's six, two, but she's six, three. I like to say I'm six, four, but I'm six, three. Uh, but my kids are probably going to be predisposed to being tall, lanky. So truly probably packing on some mass and, and just increasing the, the bone density would probably be a big, big focus for sure. What, what's your take on running guns, right? What if your kid could throw 90, but he threw 90 because he's at the age as a freshman, because he's been doing all the weighted balls. He's been doing the running guns. He's been doing all this other stuff. Then like at that point, like, was it worth to get to 90 as just as a freshman or would you wait till you're a few years older? Oh, that was a lot of questions and one, but I think where I'll start is my son will not be doing um, weighted ball, quote unquote, um, running guns at that age. I just think there's lower hanging fruit. Um, and I think it's, it's important to, to clarify and define weighted balls. I think people blend 
what weighted balls mean. When I, when we speak, when I think weighted balls, I think of weighted baseballs mm-hmm. that, you know, like the overload underload that you're throwing at max intent, um, versus a lot of people get confused with like plyos. So we, we use plyos a lot in our programs, um, from a warm up perspective at a sub maximal effort, um, and pending age, you know, we, we, we only kind of stay for the most part when we're throwing them forward for the most part in that 16 ounce range and mostly stay on the overload side, just from a, a peak stress standpoint, the, the underload is really the one that is that peak stress, right? And I think inherently when we didn't know a lot about weighted balls in the last few years, um, I guess like, you know, seven, eight years ago when it was, they were just kind of becoming popularized, repopularized, I should say. Inherently, I was like, man, when I rocket a wiffle ball, it hurts. So I just, I never got on the bandwagon of run and gun in like a two ounce light flight. And, you know, my gut, gut feel of being kind of that old guy, I guess, kind of kicked in and um, was right. I think, you know, that peak stress of, of that super fast movement inherently is more dangerous than, you know, like an overload where you've really spread out the forces of that throw over a longer period of time. So maybe like the total stress is higher, but that peak, you know, that peak stress isn't that high where you, you run into that potential for a, an, an acute injury. Um, so I think, you know, with weighted balls, I'm, I'm a, I'm a believer of those at a certain point, again, skeletally mature. Um, you've, you've, you have relative strength. You've, you've attacked your mobility deficits. If you have any, as best as you can, or you've at least, at least optimized and you've explored other options, um, in terms of, you know, again, if you can't deadlift your body weight, like, I don't care. I don't like, why are we, why are we picking up? a 16 ounce baseball and throwing it as hard as we can. Like I, to me, that doesn't resonate very well, but so I think to your question, I, that probably won't happen. So maybe, maybe I'll change. He's five. So I got 10 years, I guess, to change my opinion. And I've changed my opinions on things before, but that one, I don't see happening yet. <laughs> Josh, you mentioned earlier how, when you have players probably more specific pitchers who are having deficiencies on the mound mechanical issues that you fixed a lot of that in the weight room what are some of the ways that you've gone about helping pitchers out with specific exercises that you see on the mound but you're able to help them and fix them in the weight room yeah i think it's very individualized on that front um i think as if we take a ten thousand foot view of of what do pitchers need to generate a, a quality movement like some are one of the things kind of going you know, off the grid here, but with my, my orthopedic experience, one of the most eye-opening things was seeing all of the different hips that are out there in terms of, you know, some hips are very like deep socketed. Um, some are very shallow, like almost dysplastic. Some are retroverted, some are antiverted. Um, some are very valgus, some are very varus. Like, so all of the different hip setups are very, very different. And so when you start to look at, look at it through that lens and understand like why some people, you know, when we talk about IR driven or ER driven hip setups and the same for hitting, right? Like you get a guy that's maybe like an IR, um, like almost, you know, think almost pigeon toed type guy versus maybe someone that walks more like a duck. Um, that would be a very ER extreme example, but you can at least hopefully uh, see what I'm talking about. But 
giving those two guys the same coaching cue and the same work would probably elicit different results. It'd probably be really good for one and really bad for the other. So you, I really tried to like take a step back and say like, okay, what are like the important things? Um, and so we talk about like pec mobility and T-spine mobility and um, groin mobility and uh, those type of things in, in terms of making soft tissue gains. Um, so you can kind of drop those into like, okay, everybody's got deadlift today. Cause generally speaking, that's a quality movement for everybody. And, and at the end of the day, like 90% of everybody, everybody needs like 90% of the same stuff, but it's like that last little 10%. If you can kind of turn the dial a little bit, we might get that ex exponential gain. And if you're dealing with like a 16 year old high school kid, yeah, he needs strength. Good job. Like put weight on him, put some strength on him, and he's better. But as they get better and become like professional athletes, it's much harder to make those incremental gains. Right. So getting 1% better as a, as a professional athlete, that's already really good. Like that's way harder than making someone that's 16, like 10% better. Right. So there's just, there's, it just gets harder the, the farther you go up the, up the ladder. So in terms of, you know, what did I specifically give guys? Um, I, you know, for example, if, if a guy had a really, tight groin, you, we would drop fillers in, whether it be in the weight room or with part of his warm up, some more groin specific um, activation or mobility, or maybe a guy had really bad ankle mobility. So we would really try to hammer that within the context of his program. So, cause there's only so many hours a day and, and when you got practice, right? It's like, Hey man, I've got two hours of field time and here's what we're doing from minute to minute. Like you don't have 30 minutes for guys to work on their ankle mobility. So being able to drop little things into the weight room um, that those guys needed. And then I, I felt that they, they needed on the mound was, was a big, it was just a, it was, it was like bonus time is really what it was. You mentioned right there how you, one of the things that jumped out with you when you, you know, doing your, during your day job was how, you know, the different, the hips right, were different and, and how, you know, some of different structures and things of that nature. And what I'm kind of curious about is, do you think that every player can have like elite movement, not, not like velocity or any of that? Cause a lot of that's, a lot of that's out of your control, but just like have really good mechanics or is it something that you kind of, you have to, you kind of have to have it a little bit in a, in to begin with, but to get to like the elite of the elite. Uh, I think it, it's a, it's a question of good mechanics versus efficient mechanics. Um, you know, not everybody's mechanics are going to quote unquote be Jacob de Gram and just look like, you know, smooth butter. Right. Um, some guys are just set up different and they're going to be kind of herky jerky, but at the end of the day, they're efficient. Right. So, I mean, everybody, when Chris Sale came to the league, like everybody thought that guy was going to blow out like in a week. Right. And, I think, yeah, I think he's coming back from surgery semi recently, but I mean, that dude was dominant for like a decade and again, scrawny, herky jerky, funky movements. But if you look at, you know, what we call kind of like the pillars, uh, the seven pillars of, of an efficient delivery, um, he hits all the checkpoints, right? So it's just a way that his body self-organized into those spots and it was pretty efficient. It didn't look like everybody else's and it didn't look clean, so to speak, but it, you know, everybody's definition of good mechanics are, are 
kind of in the eye of the beholder, right? So I think it's it's very unique to the individual and finding their ability to find something that's comfortable and semi-repeatable and it's powerful and efficient. And when we talk about efficient, I mean, obviously sending the energy up the chain the correct way and, and hitting all those checkpoints or pillars and the body will find a way to get there as long as it's able to move there. Hitting and pitching have a very similar movement. So I assume when you're working with hitters, how, how much, how different are the programs you're giving them versus what you're giving a pitcher? I mean, outside of the, of course, some of the, maybe some of the arm exercises. Not very, to be honest with you. Um, they're, they're pretty much identical in terms of weight room program. Um, I personally don't work with any hitters in terms of like hitting, even though pitchers are obviously the best hitters. We all know that. Uh, <laughs> see, Shohei Atani. What I mean, that's right. That's right. See, um, but from a weight room perspective and, and movement quality, like you said, I mean, it's, it's very, very, very similar. And, and a lot of the same things pop up, whether it's a guy losing like his space in the swing and getting early hip extension and not being able to stay on the inside ball, or it's a pitcher early hip extension and not being able to rotate efficiently and getting into more of like a, a sliding hip phase instead of like a, a rotational hip pattern. So it's, it's the same principle, um, just different. So what you do like with, you said, with... the, the hitters, the hitters, we will let get a little bit more, you know, broad out up top just cause maybe they don't need to generate, uh, you know, your first baseman and, you know, those guys don't necessarily need to generate, you know, 95 plus all the time. So Matt, we'll, we'll let them beef up a little bit. What are there specific exercises you like going to for certain flaws? Like you mentioned uh, losing space. Like, is there certain like, well, I want to see him do these specific exercises because I've seen it help in the past. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll use things like the core velo belt in terms of whether it's uh, like a warm up or even if I drop it into their like lifting program. We don't really do the core velo belt too much in their lifting program, but into more of like a warm up context. Um, we use uh, like the what's that strap. So it's basically just a big loop um, that goes around. Uh, you can kind of hook it around your upper body. We'll hook it around your hips and we'll hook it up to like a we hook it up to our Kaiser machines, but you can hook it up to like a weight stack or even just a band just to kind of what we'll do is we'll try to like isolate the shoulders and have them rotate the hips underneath the torso. So just so that they understand rotating their hips, you know, underneath a fixed torso versus a lot of times it becomes like one movement. So understanding the disassociation of, of being able to move your, your hips underneath your torso, because that's really what creates that like tension. And then the torso kind of follows along with it. So um, anything where we can create like some cross fascial tensioning, so to speak, where, you know, if we're thinking there's a rubber band from like opposite shoulder to opposite hip, how can we challenge that on the anterior sling? Um, a lot, anything that kind of creates feels just that way that they can, they can feel it maybe in a slower context where it's loaded. Um, and then they can kind of carry that over into the on-field performance. One of the things that I've been seeing is that, is that, what is that machine called the Proteus? Proteus. Proteus. Yep. What do you think yep. of that? Uh, it looks great. Um, I personally don't have one. Um, and one of my buddies, Bill Miller, uh, who's a really good strength coach up in the Chicago area. Um, he just got one and kind of chatted him up. It, it's a really good, um, again, it's, it's, it's all about quantifying 
your ability to to rotate and power like power output is really what it's all about right so being able to measure your power output in a quick efficient uh, manner has kind of been difficult historically like all right if you're trying to measure rotational power in the weight room five years ago like how do you do that like you can measure you know speed of of med balls because we've had radar guns for a while and we've had med balls so you can do that like that's a pretty easy way um but maybe maybe that's not always conducive so being able to identify where your your leaks are so to speak is is huge because it just again it's all about efficient training so where, where's your leaks how can you attack it so and again i i don't have a ton of experience with the proteus so i can't speak super um in depth on it but from what i know about it it, it seems like a pretty pretty good piece obviously I don't, I don't think it's a cheap piece but yeah i don't think it's a cheap piece either well it's interesting because i saw they came out yesterday i believe on social media and said that the, the majority of that the of the athletes that they've tested are deficient in acceleration and not strength so kind of similar to what we were talking a little bit about earlier about how they should be you know having training at a lighter resistance and higher speeds and not heavy lifting yeah and i think i mean if we look at it like all right how does the, and this is maybe like typecasting, but I saw it too much in pro ball for it to not be true. Like how do these six foot to 165 pound, like Dominicans throw hundred miles an hour. Like they weren't over there working on their one RM, right? Like they were working on rate of force development. They, they grooved patterns. They threw weighted, like weighted they threw like waterlogged balls and you know they truthfully i mean i talked i talked to a lot of them were my really good friends and and i was like hey man like what did you i was just curious as a player like how did you how do you throw a hundred like you're 150 pounds man and like you, you didn't lift and he would they would just be like man we just we went out and played we would see how far we could throw the ball they, they played catch like every day long toss they played year round and they just long tossed and their arms were just in shape always they, they didn't lift they not hardly lift. they would do body weight stuff so what are they, we doing what are i mean what are we talking about then well i think it's i think it's a blend of both i think could they have benefited maybe from from some strength training to a certain extent yes but at, at the end of the day it, it's about power output right and so you take the, the basketball player that's got like a 40 inch bounce, but can't squat his body weight. Like, does that mean he's not a good basketball player? No, it just means that like, if I keep, if I teach that guy to squat, you know, we get careful here, but, but to grass, um, like, uh, you know, a lot of those guys struggle. Right. And that's just not how they're anatomically set up you know, again, going back to the femur life, like a lot of those guys have really deep socketed femurs, which is really great for, for some like power output stuff and like the frontal plane and, um, you know, maybe not being buried deep. But if you look at like a lot of like Olympic lifters and power lifters, a lot of those guys and Stu McGill is like the godfather of this, but you know, a lot of those guys have more shallow socketed where they can get into that deep squat where it doesn't really run into like that acetabular rim. So you, again, if you kind of visualize, you've got like this socket and you've got a really deep C and like your femur is buried down in there. When I try to go into a deep squat, you can kind of see how like that might not be favorable for like a really deep squat. So, but I can create a lot of tension and that's really what we're talking about is like a rubber band 
And just being able to create that snapback um, is obviously how some of those guys create some of that spring. And we talk about like stiffness and, and that sounds like a bad thing, but it's really kind of a good thing if it's in the right spots uh, of, if you have enough uh, relative stiffness within the context of, of muscle stiffness, so to speak, that's how you're going to get some of that snap back versus what well, we you know, don't necessarily want joint stiffness. But. Yeah. It's, I mean, you bring up a lot of good points there. It makes me think of back when Kevin Durant was, was doing the pre-draft stuff. They, everyone made a big deal that he couldn't bench press 185. Right. Know? Yeah. And now he's going to be a hall of famer. Yeah. He's okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Again, is <clears throat> it's skill specific, right? Like d- does he need to be able to bench to, to be a good basketball player? Probably not. Like, do you need to be able to back squat 400 pounds to be a good pitcher? Probably not. So, but there, again, it's always kind of a, in moderation thing, too much of something's probably not that great and not enough probably isn't good either. So trying to find that balance of, of strength and understanding where your fall on the force velocity curve and, you know, what, what would be the most beneficial to you to, to maximize your training time? How often do you program sprinting? Uh, every day, every day, we do some version of sprinting every day. Uh, we try to make it different in terms of like task focus. And, you know, sometimes we will put them in push-up position. Sometimes we'll put them in like side position. Sometimes we'll start uh, backwards, like a drop step. Um, sometimes we'll do reactive. Um, sometimes we'll do, um, you know, bounds into sprints and lateral, like just basically trying to vary it, um, try to re- re- trying to replicate um very, because a lot of times when those injuries happen, it, it's, it's a u- unique situation, right? Like the guy slides into second, <clears throat> he tries to pop up and goes to take off and, you know, maybe like pulls a groin on the turn. So just trying to get out of restricted play where it's like very straight head, you know, very produced, um, you know, you're going to sprint straight ahead and stop type stuff just trying to give them multiple planes of direction and lots of reactive um, strength and, and lots of different planes. Josh, appreciate you coming on, man. It's been a, a ton of fun. If, if someone wants to get in contact with you, what's, what's the best way? Yeah, man. Um, so social media, um, my, the business side of what we do is at coach K's Academy, coach KS Academy. And then I try to put out some, some more content, um, out of my own stuff. Um, so on Instagram, it's just Josh Cowton, K-A-U-T-E-N. And then on Twitter, um, <laughs> Juco, right? So Juco with a K. So J-U-K-O-A-C-H-K. Uh, so Juco, Coach K. And it's probably, I think if you just search my name, it hopefully pops up. Um, but social media is probably the best way, or you can always feel free to email me at josh at kstrainingacademy.com. Okay. Well, we'll put those links in the show notes. So appreciate you coming on, man. And uh, again, you know, I've, I've talked to some people who have, who have worked with you, even just remotely. I know, I mean, they say really good things about you and I know just talking to some other coaches too. I mean, I know, you know, your stuff and we appreciate you coming on just sharing all your, some of your wisdom. Well, I appreciate you having me on, man. Uh, really like what you do and keep, keep helping out the guys and, and, you know, providing value, man. And then you, you do a great job at that. Appreciate it.